Hello and welcome to the Week in Patriarchy podcast, your review of the biggest news stories through a feminist lens. I'm Hannah Barham-Brown. And I am your mystery co-host, Afra, and together we're covering this week's biggest stories in news, politics and pop culture from an intersectional feminist perspective, whilst also trying to decode some of the more nonsensical things our politician and the mainstream media are pushing out. Yes, in shocking news, we aren't fans of this government and I'm getting pretty frustrated by the stories that affect women or when big stories never seem to get viewed in terms of their impact on women. Now, the two of us met when we were working in politics and we have spent a lot of time trying to raise awareness of issues affecting women that rarely hit the headlines. So we'd like to think we're pretty well placed to hold some reporting to account. Yes, and we have a jam-packed week for you. We are covering Alabama's alarming new rulings around embryos, an anti-abortion society that's been formed at the University of Manchester, and the latest on Shamima Begum's case. And shock horror, we have our first bit of good news. When the government has issued important new guidance to support parents grieving miscarriages. Uh, A rare moment. Yeah, it's, it's rare for the government to do something decent and rare for us to have a positive story to cover for once. Yeah, exactly. And Hannah, before we get into it, how was your week? Um, my week's been a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest, Afrit. So exciting news. I'm now a fully qualified GP. Oh, congratulations. Um, <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, I decided to join the NHS 15 years ago. Um, I've been via paediatric nursing training, medical school, seven years post-medical school of training. And now I'm here, which is fabulous and very exciting. Um, Slight challenges, I've got to find a job. So um, yeah, getting a little bit stressed about what I'm going to do come the end of next week when I no longer have a job and trying to find one. Because yes, people can't see GPs, but simultaneously, there are no jobs for us. So I'm kind of like Schrodinger's GP right now, Um, (laughs) which is slightly terrifying. But otherwise, it's all great. Um, so I'm trying to just recuperate a little bit. And I've come up to the beautiful Northumberland to hide with my parents and um, help them in their garden. So it's actually been quite idyllic for the last couple of days. How about you, my darling? I saw that you had a very exciting weekend. <laughs> yes, I am recording this in my pajamas, slightly hungover. Um, I was at an industry party last night. Um, I can't get into any more details, or you might know who I am. But it was just—it was very fun. There was free prosecco, so naturally I indulged. Um, and yeah, I did. I committed some gentle theft. Uh, it was theft of my own work, so it's okay. Like, I just, I'm just putting, I'm not a criminal, uh, and I had loads of fun. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely feeling it today. I'm gonna have to like try and whip my body into shape after this to try and go uh, do some work because I have to work today. Oh, mate. Okay. Well, sending thoughts and prayers, babe. Thank um, you. <laughs> so, before we get started on this episode, we should highlight some trigger warnings. So, mm. in this episode, we're going to be discussing abortion, pregnancy loss, sexual violence, child abuse, and grooming. So, if any of those aren't for you, obviously, feel free to just turn off and we will see you next week. Yes, absolutely. And I would also add one more to that that I've just remembered. We will also be discussing kind of. Um, potential abuse of embryo rights or the right to use or not use your embryos. So if that is something that you are not ready for this week, that's totally fine. You may want to skip this one. So our first story, doctors shocked and angry as Alabama ruling throws IVF care into turmoil. That is from The Guardian. 
So, Afra, this is where I'm going to have to spend the entire episode trying really hard not to lose my shit. Um, because as a doctor, as somebody who's worked in women's rights for a very long time, um, this this stuff always really grates on me. So, many of our listeners will be aware that Roe versus Wade, which was the Supreme Court ruling that had enabled people to access abortion when they needed it in the US... That was overturned a few years ago. And since then, 14 states in the US have a full abortion ban, with seven having a nearly full abortion ban. And that means that assisting with an abortion or procuring an abortion in those states can lead to up to 20 years in prison. And that's not just for um, people who are, for example, taking people to clinics to get abortions, but that's the doctors as well. So if they prescribe something, if they do a surgical abortion, they could be imprisoned for doing their jobs. Um, their jobs have effectively become illegal. Um, and it's now it's just kind of spiraled and got worse and worse. So we're now in a point where Idaho are trying to ban travel for pregnant women who want to get an abortion out of state. Um, they've managed that and Texas and Oklahoma are now trying the same. And what we saw this week was a kind of terrifying sequelae of this, where um, Alabama court have declared that embryos used in IVF have the same level of personhood as children. And so the termination of these embryos would be considered wrongful death under the state statutes, i.e. if you terminated one of these embryos, that could be considered murder in the eyes of the law. Now, it's really important that we get the science of this. And I'm going to try and hold back from going like full geek because, you know, medical degree. Um, No, we love full geek here in this podcast. (laughs) Please go for it. So when we talk about an embryo, we're talking about a fertilized egg that is not implanted. So a fertilized egg, we're literally looking at a couple of cells. Full-blown humans have around 40 trillion cells. Um, Embryos, day three, have around six to 10. So these are literally a couple of cells. Um, And by the point of implantation, which is normally around day six in IVF, um, you might have a few hundred cells that are just going to either become fetal tissue or placenta. That's it. They're not doing anything else fancy. That's where we are. So to give these personhood is baffling at the least. And this case came out of a kind of really tragic event um, when at a mobile fertility clinic in Alabama in December 2020, a patient somehow got into the cryogenic embryo storage unit, lifted one of these ultra cold frozen vessels out of storage and immediately dropped it because it was so cold it burnt her hand. And the embryos that were inside, the frozen embryos inside, were destroyed immediately. And the three couples whose embryos were in this piece of property um, tried to take a wrongful death case to the courts. But they were originally told that embryos are property, not people, and so they couldn't have a wrongful death case. They then took this up to the state's highest court, um, where it was ruled that wrongful death applied to, and I quote, all unborn children, regardless of their location, which apparently includes embryos. Now, this has had massive implications for IVF and lots of other elements, um, but it's quite terrifying. So to try and understand, when you're going through IVF, the process is that you stimulate ovulation. So you kind of give the person lots of injections to get them to reduce extra eggs. Um, You get them, you fertilize them in vitro, which literally translates as in glass. So in a test tube, that's why they're called test tube babies. Um, by sticking a bit of sperm in there. Um, It's very technical, this, can you tell? Um, That creates eventually blastocysts after a few days, which are a few hundred cells by day five or six, as we've heard. Um, And then around day six, we generally implant one or two of those embryos into a uterus. They often try and stimulate more eggs than they're going to implant. 
because some of these embryos will fail. Some of them will never go on to create a healthy baby. Um, some will not survive the freezing process of storage, which enables, which is a process that enables couples to keep some for further attempts. So we'll always make spares and often put them in storage. And now each of those things, a failed embryo, an embryo that's not going to survive, an embryo that doesn't survive the freezing, um, those could all lead to a wrongful death case. And that has led to organizations such as Alabama Fertility Services holding off on all new IVF treatments due to, and they say, a legal risk to our clinic and our embryologists. So what we've seen here is basically people who have next to no scientific knowledge, no understanding really, um, but happen to be elected lawmakers, for example, Senator Tommy Turbeville, he's a former sports coach, um, who was interviewed this week and just kept saying on repeat, we need people to have the opportunity to have kids. Except by doing this, he's actively stopping them because he's removing access to IVF. So we're clearly kind of pushing out experts. And this is something that we're seeing across the US now in particular. Um, there's currently a case going up in front of the Supreme Court questioning whether the Federal Drugs Agency, who like oversee all medications in the US, whether they have the authority to decide if mifepristone, which is the medication we use for medical abortions, is, is being discussed whether the FDA have the right to decide whether that's safe and effective. If not, that's bonkers because they decide whether all drugs are safe and effective. So, yeah, it's quite a terrifying time in the US. Yeah, that is. I mean, it's following a pattern, isn't it, that we're seeing of like people who have absolutely no medical knowledge uh, making laws around women's bodies. And these laws are based off of like either willful misunderstanding of how like medicine works or how biology works or complete ignorance and no kind of interest or willingness to listen to the expertise here. So, I mean, all of that, I think, I think you and I are going to be very angry um, throughout this whole episode, but what, what implications does all of the things you've just talked about have for IVF and women's rights in general? So this has huge implications across the board. So firstly, fetuses are not people and every other institution except this court of law recognises that. So, for example, you can't take out life insurance on a fetus. You can't register it as a citizen. You can't arrest a fetus. Um, (laughs) Don't get child support. Um, So there's loads of elements in which we do not consider fetuses to be people, except apparently here in Alabama with this particular ruling. And also, like, just the practicalities of how this works. So, for example, sometimes a fetus in utero will absorb its twin is that fetus now liable for murder? Yes, and how yes, do you it arrest is. That fetus, like, so you could find that somebody is born having already committed a murder. That is, that is the kind of like long term legal implications of this. But most concerningly, for you know people who are in the process of trying to become parents or who want to become parents, there is basically a direct line from the courts mandating that you cannot destroy an IVF embryo, to mandating that an IVF embryo must be implanted because we always make spare embryos and so what are we meant to do are we meant to suddenly implant them all which massively increases the risk of multiple births which massively increase the risk of fetal death and neonatal death and illness so that's not a safe option either um you can't freeze humans so is it legally okay to freeze (laughs) embryos in the first place Um, so what you're saying is this is potentially going to cause more death and yes. more suffering. Yes. Right. And 2% of births in the US at the moment are conceived via IVF. 
So we have to think about the fact that if IVF is under attack, what are the potential sequelae of this? For example, if mm. IVF is under attack now, um, how long is it going to be until we're attacking birth control? Mm. Which sounds terrifying, right? And everyone's like, oh my God, no, we wouldn't remove that. Except that's kind of already happening as well. Because if embryos are people, then denying them the right to implant, which is what they need to continue to develop and become fully functioning humans, if they can't implant, that is going to lead to their death. An embryo cannot survive ad infinitum not implanted. So if you're stopping that implantation, that could become illegal. Now, some of the methods we already use for birth control some of the ways they work are that they stop implantation. So, for example, the copper IUD, morning after pills, they work in a range of ways, including delaying ovulation. But one of the ways they work is that they can stop implantation. So we need to kind of consider all of these things. This is not just about IVF. This is not just about abortion. This is about so, so much more. We also need to consider the fact that regular birth control often uses medications such as levonorgestrel, which at higher doses can be used for medical abortions. So would the court then turn around and go, wait, no, people could potentially take these pills and induce an early abortion. So we should just get rid of them altogether. But it's also going to massively disproportionately impact minoritized groups and marginalized groups. So for example, LGBTQ people, many of us use IVF to conceive. As somebody who is considering getting pregnant at some point, IVF is going to be a very likely way in which we go about doing that. Um, and so if you are a conservative lawmaker who doesn't want LGBTQ parents and families to exist, stopping IVF is a really good way of stopping that. So this is not just about IVF. This is not just about abortions. This is not just about birth control. This is so, so like multifactorial and can have so many implications for so many people and it is so enraging I just my blood's boiling listening to you explain this and I think the other factor about this case that really interests me is this concept of fetal personhood which is a cornerstone of the far right's anti-choice movement and you know just to be clear like we don't call it the pro-life movement because it's actually completely misleading and it's false yeah, absolutely. The term pro-life implies that everyone else is somehow anti-life. Um, and it's also used to spread disinformation about pregnancy and the viability of an embryo or a fetus. So yeah, pro-life, we, we don't use that. Nah. No, no. Also, if these people were that concerned about life, they'd be furiously campaigning for the US government to pump money into the foster care system and they'd be decrying child poverty, but they're not doing any of those things. So we prefer and we use the term anti-choice deliberately. Yeah, because that's exactly what it is. It's the belief that women do not have the right to bodily autonomy. That is what the anti-choice movement is doing. It is the belief that they do not have the choice. Yeah, exactly. So what is fetal personhood? Fetal personhood is essentially a term meaning that a fetus is a person. So life begins at the point of conception. That is incredibly dangerous as an ideology for basically all of the reasons we've just mentioned above, but also because this then sets up a fetus as having more rights as the person carrying it. So that it defies medical reality. And Hannah, you're a doctor. Could you please explain to me why a fetus is not a person? 
Well, a fetus is a collection of cells that are very swiftly dividing um, along the process of potentially becoming a person, potentially being a very key word there. Um, So no, a fetus is not a person. A fetus could not survive outside the womb. Um, So it's, yeah, going on to all of this kind of stuff around embryos and stuff, there there are huge differences, huge, huge differences. Um, Yeah, I'm catching my breath because I'm feeling myself getting more angry. Okay, well, whilst you do that, um, I'm gonna. I want to bring this back to IVF and the implications that um, what's going on in Alabama has potentially has for embryos. So, I would like to tell you a story about the very real life consequences that this kind of bullshit has. Um, Hannah, do you know who Sofia Vergara is? Yes, she is the very attractive lady in Modern Family who is also an excellent actress, and I am very impressed by as a human being. I think yes. for now. Absolutely. Oh no, no. Right? Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Don't ruin Sophia for me. We we love we love we love Sophia. We love Sophia. So Sophia Vergara is a Colombian American actor and TV personality. She's best known for starring as Gloria Delgado Pritchett in Modern Family. She's also an incredibly talented comedian with brilliant timing, in my opinion. And she is also known for shutting down anyone who mocks her accent or her English, which I love. So Sophia Vergara was locked into a years-long legal battle over the use of her embryos without her consent. Oh, I'm going to get more angry, aren't I? Yeah, you definitely will. So, Vergara dated a guy called Nick Loeb, who is an American businessman, and she dated him between 2012 and 2014. And at this point, at some point, they were engaged. In 2013, they created embryos via IVF in Beverly Hills when they were trying to have a child via surrogate. Ultimately, Vergara and Loeb split in 2014, and these embryos were then kept in a storage facility in California. And then in 2014, so this is, they break up, and then in a very sinister and disturbing move, Loeb then files a lawsuit for custody of those frozen embryos, because he's arguing that Vergara had given him verbal permission to use these embryos i.e. he intended to employ a surrogate or multiple surrogates to carry his and Vergara's children. Now, he actually dropped this lawsuit because it became clear it wasn't working out in California. But in 2016, so again, this is two years after they've split and and Sophia has moved on, he filed a right-to-life lawsuit against her in Louisiana. And the choice of court here was deliberate. He took advantage of Louisiana's more lax laws around this. And he was able, this part, this part makes me so angry. He, he was able to name the two embryos as plaintiffs in this lawsuit. And he actually named them. He gave them names. He called them Emma and Isabella. Holy. This is, and the thing is, he would have known he was doing this in a kind of like media spotlight and that giving these tiny groups of cells names would have like upset people would have like tried to bring people onto his oh my god you ne- oh no mate no yeah. it gets worse um so oh you're you're absolutely right there was a huge media frenzy around this like the entire point of this lawsuit which got loads and loads of support from this from the anti-choice movement and, and funding from the anti-choice movement was to establish that these embryos were in fact people and had the right to be born the suit argued that keeping them frozen was equivalent to murder 
Now, obviously, Sofia Vergara herself was completely against this, and she had to spend years of her life, seven years to be exact, and so much money to fight this. So her lawyers pointed to the original contract that the couple signed when they embarked on the process. And the contract stated that the party cannot use the cryo-preserved material, note, not person, material, to create a child without the written consent of the other person. But Loeb was trying to argue that this contract was invalid as it would impinge on the rights of the embryos to live and that, again, he allegedly had verbal permission from Vergara to use them. He also, and this part makes me so mad, he tried to terminate her rights to the embryos by alleging that she had abandoned and neglected them by leaving them to remain frozen. What's he bloody wanted to do? Read them a bloody bedtime story? They're a group of cells in a test tube. Oh, yeah, they're not people. Oh. And so, you know, Sophia has been extremely clear that she does not want children to be created from these embryos with or without her involvement. And in 2017, she filed a suit against Loeb, hoping to block him from using these embryos. And finally, in 2021, a judge in Louisiana ruled that actually they had no jurisdiction in this case because the embryos were created in California. And in 2021, Vergara thankfully also managed to win a permanent injunction against Loeb, which would prevent him from using the embryos without her written consent. I mean, this story is is so absurd. It's almost funny, except that it very much isn't. I'm honestly almost speechless. And let's face it, that doesn't happen very often. So we've all had toxic exes, right? But this, mm-hmm. I think, takes the absolute biscuit. He put her through a seven-year legal battle. Um, then the win in Louisiana was kind of on a technicality where they were just like, you know what, guys, we're washing our hands of this. It wasn't even in our patch, like not our problem. So it's not even that the courts turned around and said, don't be an idiot. Like, of course, you can't do this to him. Oh, oh, right. Okay. And then like, this is, it's so reminiscent of so many relationships where toxic men are trying to kind of control people after the end of a relationship. It's so bloody sinister. We see it all the time in so many people and women who've experienced abuse in particular, where even when you've left that person, they try and maintain control over you in so many ways, be that financial or in this case, legal. It's so bloody sinister. And um, we've got to also acknowledge that, you know, Sophia Vergara is is a very well-off woman. Um, she's, you know, an international star. She had the money and resources to fight this, but other women may not be as financially able to sit there and contest this for seven years. I mean, I dread to think mm-hmm. how much all of those lawyers cost. And so it's got some like incredibly disturbing implications for not only how we view embryos, but how we view women, yeah. um, particularly in this context of fetal personhood. It basically says, right, well, we've got this out of you now, so we're just going to take it and we can do what the hell we like with it. I, honestly, I'm, I'm part livid, part speechless. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is really, really sinister. And that, you know, this wasn't something that was happening on the fringes of the news either. Loeb was on a full publicity campaign. And literally in the same year that Vergara got married to her now ex-partner, he penned an op-ed for the, for the New York Times. I don't know what they were thinking, but he penned this op-ed and he wrote in it, embryonic custody disputes raise important questions about life, religion, and parenthood. And 
I think, I, you know, I should, I should also add, just because it infuriates me so much, that the reason why Lope had to drop the very first case, the one he initially launched in California, is because the court wanted him to discuss the two abortions he had had with two women he had impregnated in the past. So this man, his like this man, the motivations behind what he was doing here, we can't, you know, we can't speculate on that, obviously. But I think it's quite clear that there was a lot more at stake here than than these embryos. It was it was also about, in my opinion, controlling Sofia Vergara and also perhaps potentially setting a precedent in law that would pave the way for some really, really scary stuff. It's also the most like duplicitous thing. You're okay with, or potentially he's okay with aborting two fetuses that are implanted. Um, that's okay. But embryos, like little bundles of cells in a test tube, he legally holds in high regard. Yeah. I, and this is why the legal system in the US is screwed. Yeah. Our second story is um, somewhat shockingly directly related to our first. And this is from The Independent. Um, It's female students fear for their safety as anti-abortion society is set up by three men. Oh, fucking hell. Um, Where's that misogyny soundbite from a couple of episodes ago? Misogyny. Misogyny. Yeah, this is uh, Manchester University, um, where an all-male committee... Um, apparently this society has three whole members An all-male committee has set up a pro-life, anti-choice society Whose primary aim is to create a pro-life culture on campus <laughs> As I said, this society has apparently three members, maybe two um, And the student union at Manchester Uni Has um, garnered quite a lot of criticism for allowing this society to form But The student union says it's unable to stop them due to freedom of speech laws. Now, over 15,000 people have signed a petition in protest against this organisation starting. And students on the campus, including those who've had abortions, have said that they feel personally victimised and threatened by the presence of this society on campus. And um, one student, Heather Bowling, has said it's blatant misogyny, control and subjugation of women hidden behind a smokescreen disguised as a political opinion or stance point. Yes, Heather. Yes. I I mean, I can't. Heather summed it up, basically, but I I can't even tell you how mad this makes me. And, you know, the the thing with this is is, it's easy to take a story like this and laugh at it. I mean, it, it it is absurd. It is this toothless little society formed by students with three or less members in the face of overwhelming opposition. But actually, the reason why we have to take this seriously is because this is similar to how the anti choice movement in America became such an effective political campaign. Yeah, because they used similar methods by supporting and funding grassroots movements in strategic places like universities, local councils, community groups. They infiltrated those places and slowly built momentum. And that's what we're continuing to see in the US. Yeah. And I mean, we're not necessarily saying that this is what's happened in this specific case, but I think we would be foolish to ignore these links between anti-choice movements in the US and the recent backlash to abortion rights here, and indeed how tenuous our own reproductive rights are. Yeah. And something that really still shocks people is that actually abortion is still criminalized in the UK. 
To access an abortion in the UK at the moment, women still need to fit specific criteria and secure the permission of two doctors. And this is a fact that really surprises many people who've had abortions, as they may never actually interact with those two doctors. A lot of providers will get those signatures sorted for you. Um, So technically, abortion law sits under the Offences Against the Person Act. um, And that originates from the Victorian era in 1861. So this this act even predates women's right to vote. It is that old. And most importantly, it is not fit for purpose in the 21st century. So Mary Stopes International, MSI, this week um, found that there have been over 60 criminal investigations in England and Wales since 2018 looking at women who've accessed abortions. So We've seen a lot of movement around abortion in recent years in the UK. During the pandemic, we saw the bringing in of at-home abortions or telemedicine abortions, which are early abortions, which are medications-based, and people could access these over the phone without having to go into a clinic, get the prescription, and take the medications at home. Subsequent to the pandemic, we then saw parts of the government trying to remove them again, which fortunately they did not succeed in doing thanks to a lot of campaigning by many organisations. Over in Northern Ireland, um, abortion was only legalised in 2019, but it's still punishingly hard to get them there. And we have many people coming over to the UK mainland to get an abortion. And in the past year in England, we've seen five women appear in court charged with ending or attempting to end their own pregnancy outside abortion law. This is up from four women in total over the previous 55 years. So this has hugely increased. Now, next month, Dame Diana Johnson has put forward an amendment to the Criminal Justice Bill to remove women from the Offences Against the Person Act 1861 and the Infant Life Preservation Act 1929 in relation to their own pregnancies. And this amendment would ensure that no woman faces prosecution or jail time for ending her pregnancy. It would effectively decriminalise abortion. But existing abortion lines otherwise and regulation would remain intact. So it wouldn't just kind of like lead to this completely, you know, unregulated system. There would still be laws in place, but it would decriminalise women accessing abortions. And this amendment has the support of cross-party MPs as well as leading medical bodies and abortion providers. And really tellingly, Victoria Atkins, the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, has in recent days said that she too would support this amendment, which is fantastic and quite surprising news, but really, really great to hear. Yeah, I mean, I think people who have grown up in England, Wales and Scotland do have this sense that our reproductive rights are protected and set in stone because we don't have the high profile court battles and the kind of enraged evangelicals and the Roe v. Wade. But the reality is that our bodily autonomy is very policed here as well. And it does feel like the American far right is turning its beady little eye over to us to see what damage it can do. Yeah, there are some really concerning links between the American anti-choice movement and the British one, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, so here's one example. Sophia Smith-Gaylor, who's a brilliant investigative journalist, has done some really great work on this. And in 2022, in an article for Vice, she found that an anti-abortion group here that gives talks in schools, so to children and to medical professionals, received close to £73,000 from anonymous US-based backers. And that was directly donated to one of the UK's most active anti-choice groups. We're not going to name any of them here because they don't deserve any air time but it's it is happening yeah they're they're out there and they are amongst us and it is it is just utterly horrific 
yeah that this is being allowed to happen yeah i mean in the last i'd say two decades the anti-choice movement has just become quite americanized and i you know whether that's from like adopting their tactics so there's like one specific group which was founded in texas but very actively campaigns here in the uk they stand outside healthcare clinics and they spread disinformation with leaflets that falsely claim that abortion is linked to breast cancer or that it causes alcoholism drug use and eating disorders there are stories of women who you know in their own words feel harassed humiliated or they're made to feel violated when they're trying to enter these clinics. And all of these are kind of widespread campaign tactics, tactics in inverted commas, that were popularized in the States. Yeah, there's another one founded in California, but now campaigning in England. And they stage rallies outside abortion clinics with very graphic, often doctored images that are designed to disgust and dissuade people from entering. And they also adopt this really inflammatory language on radio shows and marches and rallies that A, imply that the right to access abortion is up for debate. It is not. And B, they label abortion as ethnic cleansing or genocide, which is obviously a disgusting thing to do. Yeah, it really is, especially in the kind of political current context. And, you know, this inflammatory language, it, it, it sounds ridiculous, but then you see that being replicated in senator, like among senators or lawmakers or officials. You see them repeating this really inflammatory, ridiculous language that is medically incorrect. And then you see it influencing them and influencing the decisions they're making on laws that probably, probably don't affect them. You know, and I think it probably goes without saying that all of these efforts here in the UK to attack our reproductive rights have obviously been emboldened by the overturning of Roe v. Wade. You know, I, like Hannah, I think you and I could fill about 10 hours worth of audio content discussing this and elaborating on, on how dangerous and insidious this shit is. But I do want to move us on because we actually have some positive news. Yeah, absolutely. And But I will wrap up with this. Abortion is healthcare and no one should risk being criminalized for seeking essential medical care. And we cannot get complacent about this shit because we have to campaign and protest for our bodily autonomy it is not set in stone. All right, now this one is from Sky News. Baby loss certificates introduced in England to provide comfort for parents grieving after a miscarriage. So it feels really strange to label something as sensitive and personal as this as good news, but it really is for many people. So up until now, babies who were tragically miscarried or passed away before 24 weeks weren't required to be registered as deceased until now. So now parents will be able to receive a certificate to recognise the loss of their baby. Yeah, I mean, the idea of registering a miscarried baby which didn't make it to full term might seem odd, but this is really important because of how we grieve and understand loss. Yeah, for many, and not everyone, because this is a highly personalized experience and that's okay. But for many people, the impact of pregnancy loss can be absolutely devastating. And there are lots of rituals and procedures in society that we use to recognize and acknowledge grief more widely. Um, but when it comes to this, there previously haven't been things like death certificates, funerals, compassionate leave or bereavement leave for people who've experienced a miscarriage that early in pregnancy. So being able to give some form of ritual to this can really, really help people in processing it. 
Mm, yeah, yeah, because rituals are a really important part of grief. So for those people who find themselves in these really heartbreaking situations of losing their child in mid to kind of early stages of pregnancy, not having this acknowledgement can make it really hard to process that loss. And parents have talked about feeling like their experience wasn't respected or recognized and therefore they weren't given the space to mourn. Yeah, and I think for lots of people, getting a certificate, an official certificate with their child's name on it, something that they can share with family and friends and use to remember that baby, that's a really crucial stage of grief in that processing. So I'm really glad that the government have taken this step and hopefully it's the first of many. Yeah, that is the the critical bit, isn't it? Because if these certificates aren't legal documents and they don't come with additional rights like statutory leave, uh, there is clearly more work to be done. Yeah. And the health secretary, so Victoria Atkins, has been explicit in calling this a step forward, but not an end goal. So let's hope that this government and subsequent governments continue to take this forward. But I think it's really important because we've had, you know, it's been a very heavy episode, Afra. Yeah. And I think it's really important. We have to kind of acknowledge that the stories we've covered almost jar against each other a Mm -hmm. lot. When you're talking about abortion rights, legally, In the UK, you can abort a fetus up to 24 weeks of pregnancy. Um, For certain medical conditions only, can you go up that late? Like most people, there's a a cutoff much earlier. Um, But it can be really jarring when you're talking about, you know, reproductive rights versus the very real need for some parents to grieve a fetus of not dissimilar gestation. So I think it just really illustrates how complex these discussions are and how much compassion we need to have when discussing these things and why it shouldn't just come down to a matter of this lawmaker says this, this one says this, this scientist says this, because there are very real people in all of these situations who are living through this and trying to process all the different emotions that come with it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think, you know, we ourselves I mean, I catch myself doing this as well. The language that I use will change depending on the circumstance of the story. Mm-hmm. So I'll talk about baby versus embryo versus fetus. So, uh, and I mean, uh, you know, on the on the other hand, the story that you were talking about at the very beginning of of those three couples who lost those embryos because a patient somehow got into like what should have been a very secure area and and dropped that that's like storage and and damaged or destroyed those those embryos that is an incredibly distressing and traumatic thing to go through especially because of the the, the cost the physical and mental and emotional ex- uh, like toll that creating those embryos takes on people and you know at the same time i i i think you and i will always stand on the right of a of a of a person to choose what they do and don't do with their body and so sometimes we can perhaps veer into this state of being as as defensive as as possible in order because because that right is just so important and so you know hopefully we have been able to kind of we we've been able to do a, a good enough job of balancing these like incredibly complex and nuanced topics with as much care and compassion as possible. But I'm, I guess what we're also saying is that multiple things can exist and be true at the same time. Like on the one hand, a person's right to bodily autonomy and to be or not be pregnant is fundamental. But at the same time, we also have to acknowledge that those experiences can be incredibly complicated. And there are people who may 
miscarry and and be okay with it. There are people who may miscarry and be completely devastated by it. There are people who may miscarry and feel absolutely nothing. And there are millions of ranges of responses between all of those things that I've just said. And we have to make space for all of those emotions because if this topic were easy and straightforward, it probably would have been sorted out quite a long time ago. Okay, I know we've hit our limit on topics today, Hannah, but there is one more that I feel so strongly about that I had to include it here today. So this is a headline from The Guardian. Shamima Begum loses appeal against removal of British citizenship. Yeah, so this is a case that has garnered a huge amount of press attention and controversy over many years. And it's one of those things that a lot of people talk about and feel they have very, very strong views on without necessarily understanding all the intricacies of it. So I think it's important we do go over it today. So Shamima Begum was 15 when she left London and travelled to Syria with two friends to join the Islamic State, which is a designated terrorist group. Now, shortly after arriving, she married a 21-year-old and went on to have three children, all of whom tragically died very young. So really sadly, her youngest child, who was born in February 2019 in a Syrian refugee camp, died of a lung infection by March of the same year. And this happened after Begum had been found by a war correspondent for the Times and the government had been alerted. So they knew where she was. They knew what was happening. They knew she had a child. But Shamima and the child were not removed and the child got very sick and then died. And in the same year, the then Home Secretary Sajid Javid stripped Shamima of her British citizenship, effectively leaving her stateless and stranded. And the government have justified this by saying that she poses a threat to national security. I mean, this is such a distressing case because... Yes, well, well, there's no denying that um, she, you know, she made an awful decision. She was a child. She was 15, and and when she when she left the UK, and her and her lawyers have argued that she was groomed and trafficked and sexually exploited and forced into an underage marriage. And Shamima has made it like abundantly clear that she heavily regrets leaving the UK, and she has gone through an unbelievable amount of trauma and exploitation. And you know the lack of humanity that the government has displayed when it comes to her case. Is is shocking. Yeah, it's it's just such a heartbreaking situation because the Met have now apologised subsequently because they actually knew that Shamima and her two friends were planning to go to Syria and they did not intervene to stop them. So the Met have apologised for that. Um, but this is the second appeal that she's lost, um, which was discussing whether the UK government may have broken the law in removing her to citizenship because it is illegal to make someone stateless, would be the argument. Um, Now, the UK government have argued that she actually has the right to Bangladeshi citizenship, but the Bangladeshi government contest this, and Shamima's kind of stuck in the middle of them. And the judges who've ruled against her this week have basically said that it kind of doesn't matter that she was very likely to have been a child victim of sexual exploitation because the risk she allegedly poses is more important. Yeah, I mean... I think when it comes to um, situations like this, uh, we can either choose to blame the individual for like solely blame the individual for the choices they made and and the decisions that that they took that led them to where they are now. Or we can take a more empathetic and compassionate look and look at the institutions that surrounded this individual at the time and question what did they do? So you have the Met Police 
not stepping in, potentially preventing all of this from happening in the first place. But you also have the just the institutions of our, like our criminal justice system who have and, and our government and who have who have come down on this in such a punitive and dehumanizing way. I mean, I want to read you a quote by Lady Chief Justice Baroness Carr, who is one of the judges on this case. She said, and I quote, it could be argued that Miss Begum is the author of her own misfortune. Now, when I read that phrase, I had a really horrible sense of deja vu. And I, I did some research and I found out, I, I found that that phrase, that sentiment, that that she is to blame for all of this, that the responsibility lies with her alone. That sentiment was also applied to children, majoritively teenage girls, who were being abused, raped, and exploited in Rochdale and in Rotherham from the late 80s up until 2013. You know, there are reports that show that officials and authorities involved use that exact same phrasing. They had this impression that these children were the quote, authors of their own misfortune. And I find it really chilling that when it comes to child and teenage sexual abuse, grooming and exploitation, that this is the response by some of the most powerful people in law enforcement and criminal justice. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one because a lot of people's kind of automatic response to this seems to be, um, well, we can't just, you know, let her back here and have her wandering around and putting people at risk. That's not necessarily what we're discussing here. What we're discussing is whether anybody should be made stateless, particularly on the basis of a decision they made as a child, as an exploited, trafficked, abused child. Um, So I think the government's response to this does feel hugely disproportionate because at the end of the day, we're talking about one woman who made a decision aged 15 and who has been living in a refugee camp for many years as a result um, facing huge trauma and horrific things. Um, so I think there's there's just a lot more nuance to this discussion than mm. we seem to be getting in the mainstream media about it. Yeah. And I think uh, our producer, Alex, when we were talking about this, made a really, really good point was that, and that was that, you know, people who are racialized, the perception against them is is often that they they are much older than they are so they are given so much less grace and space to be young to be children we see this again you know happening towards you know young black men in in the UK we certainly see it happening to young black women who and and young brown women who are sexualized and and aged up well like beyond their years and therefore somehow responsible for the abuse and exploitation that is perpetrated against them so that is a really really good point from from alex and i think you know i can't help but see the links between all of these stories we've we've talked about bodily autonomy we've talked about reproductive rights we've talked about women's bodies and the way that they are legislated against abused trafficked exploited dehumanized, blamed, uh, the, the ways that, that they are allowed to grieve or not grieve, the uh, ways that they're allowed to make decisions or not make decisions about their own body and what they do with them. And I, I think that perhaps this episode, out of everything we've recorded so far, does such a good job of showing just how insidious patriarchy and misogyny are in our lives and in the lives of especially in the lives of women of color uh, or queer women um, or disabled women or 
women who, you know, who may not have the financial and, and legal recourse to fight for their own rights. And it, it, it just goes to show um, how important it is that we talk about and unpick these topics. And, and obviously not just us, these are topics that are being written about, researched, campaigned against or campaigned for by really, really admirable activists and women out there. And, and this work, everything that we've just done today is, is, exists because of their work and their research and, and their refusal to let these awful things happen without, you know, without protest. Yeah, I think, Afra, it's been a really heavy week on the pod, hasn't it? It's been a vitally important week. (laughs) So, so important. We discuss these things, but it has been a really heavy week. So if you're still with us, thank you. We do appreciate it. Um, Mm -hmm. As a special treat uh, (laughs) next week, I'm not sure whether this is a treat or not, but as a special treat next week, uh, we're going to be doing a tabloid special. Uh, treat for you maybe but we're gonna have to read the tabloids so you know send thoughts and prayers um so yeah look forward to that one the next edition will be a tabloid special and so with that thank you for listening to this week's episode of the week in patriarchy you can find a link to the transcript of this episode in the show notes and on our substack page We are aiming to release episodes every couple of weeks as we get started. But if you like it, it might just become a weekly thing. That would be great. So yeah, uh, make sure to follow us and subscribe wherever you source your podcasts. Find us on Instagram at The Week in Patriarchy Pod and on Substack where you just need to search The Week in Patriarchy Podcast to be the first to know when a new episode drops. Yeah, I believe we're on TikTok too, aren't we, Hannah? oh yes we're on tiktok come say hi we're again at the week in patriarchy pod say hello please show us some love and please do give us a rating as it helps others find us or tell your mates to follow us or if you really love us please share our socials so that we can really kickstart our fight back against the patriarchal bullshittery that surrounds us daily and finally huge thanks to our incredibly patient and technically marvelous producers alex and jess and thank you for joining us for the week in patriarchy we'll be back very soon Mm -hmm.